Good evening, everybody. So, um, my welcome to the Trinity Longroom Hub, Arts and Humanities Research Institute. It's my very great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's Identities Research Team Signature Lecture by the distinguished social theorist and identity scholar, Professor Anthony Elliott from the University of South Australia. This lecture series is a highlight of this institute's research theme on identity and transformation that many of you are involved with, an interdisciplinary research focus that explores the transformation of identities from a variety of perspectives and disciplines, and is a major contribution to this institute's and our nine partner school, uh, a major contribution of this institute and our nine partner schools to the vibrancy, excellence, and relevance of our arts and humanities scholarship. Anthony is director of the Hawke Research Institute, where he is at the University of South Australia in Adelaide, where he is also a research professor of sociology. We met for the first time in April 2012, because at about the same time, and initially without knowing about each other, both of our institutes launched a research team on identities. We called it Identities in Transformation. Anthony was a bit sort of more succinct and called it Identity Transformations. And uh, when we established this and uh, Anthony visited us in April 2012, we decided to cooperate on the matter. And in October 2013, we signed an MOU with the Vice-Chancellor of, uh, of the University of South Australia when he was visiting his old, uh, his old university, because it's David Lloyd, our previous dean of research and person. This is Anthony's third visit to explore collaboration. Um, while he's here as a short-term visiting research fellow of this institute on a wide range of research fields. In January, the deputy director of the Hawke Institute, and many of you will remember this great evening, Jennifer Rutherford, launched our theme-related lecture series this semester, The Transformative Periphery, Negotiating Identities from the Margins, with a lecture on the cultural phantasms which negotiate the dark side of our identities. She gave a lecture of zombie, on zombies, and my colleague Kim Woodnow was also here, then one on vampires, and our colleague Peter was one on werewolves. So uh, that was a, a good start. Now, we are extremely fortunate that we have such a strong, active, and imaginative partner in the Hawke Institute and in Antony. The old collaboration has already achieved its first research grant successes, and as we know, deans of research like to measure the success of almost everyone in terms of research grants. The Hawk was successful in the bid to establish, with EU funding, a big EU center for mobilities, migrations, and cultural transformations. And we are very pleased that we are partners in this application and will work in the center and with the center in the years to come. So, this strong developing relationship is wonderful for us. And we are doubly pleased and privileged that you are here tonight to deliver our Identity Steam Signature Lecture, as Anthony Elliott is indeed one of the foremost identity scholars anywhere. Anthony is author and editor of over 30 books, and they have been or are in the process of being translated into 17 languages. And I just mentioned a few recent ones, Mobile, Mobile Lives 2010, The Routelic Routledge Handbook of Identity Studies 2011, 
uh, a book on reinvention, the, cop the, the, talk, the topic of tonight's talk in 2013, uh, a, a book, Concepts of the Self, which will go in its third, into its third edition next year, and the forthcoming book on identity troubles in 2015. So, um, no better man to deliver a talk that promises to go straight to the heart of identity troubles today. Reinventions uh, are, are really a, a, a most important talk for our team, a team if we only think of the incessant acceleration of time and speeding up of all processes spurred on by uh, changes in uh, communication technologies and ever shorter innovation cycles, the concomitant loss of coherence and constancy and reliability of experience, which, as I think about it, already Walter Benjamin in the 1920s and 1930s diagnosed as the shock element to modern life. Sometimes wonder what he would say about our life and our reality today. The multiple and quickly multiplying offers of self-fashioning and reinvention through and with the help of the virtual and the hyper-plurality of lifestyles and identity choices which we can adapt and shed in quick succession, these are indeed trends that raise many prospects and questions, alarming ones, not least theoretical questions about the framing of identity as constructed and performed, and on the other hand, the necessity of being able to make sense of your experience and have a sense of constancy and continuity and reliability in your life. So we are really fortunate that we have Anthony here with us to explore these topics in his lecture, Reinvention, Identity Transformations and the Consequences. So, please. The cultural backcloth, I think, really, to this talk is, uh, let's run a test whether this, this machinery actually works. It's trying to think of a term that best encapsulates what it is that I do want to talk about, and it's really a world that's taken us by surprise. I'm referring to the growing gradual cultural anxiety that more and more women and men experience today that their core sense of self, their fundamental sense of individualism, if you will, is being rendered increasingly unfit for purpose in terms of confronting the core challenges of society, uh, culture and politics. This is the cultural anxiety that I think more women and men today uh, are facing, that they need to somehow undertake a set of revisions, uh, a set of recalibrations, a set of reorganizations, a set of kind of restructurings of their professional lives and also of their personal lives in order to be able to get on and confront uh, the challenges of daily life. And yet, somehow, curiously, more than that, because the insidious implantation of anxiety that, you know, whatever reconstructions, whatever recalibrations, whatever restructurings uh, of one's self-identity are undertaken, somehow the kind of gnawing anxiety in the back of your mind that whilst this might be enough to get you through the core challenges and dilemmas of today, this worry that it won't be enough to see you through the challenges that you're going to face tomorrow. 
and that therefore that this whole process is going to somehow start again, you know, as if from scratch, and on and on in a kind of infinite uh, regress. Now, uh, that world that's taken us by surprise, I'd like to, su to suggest to you this evening, is certainly, I think, highly evident at the levels of popular culture, but it's also evident in other sectors of the economy and, the soci and society more generally, I believe. It's evident certainly in the whole cult of reinvention, of makeover mantras, the uh, increasing emergence uh, and rise of a kind of short-term, quick-fix, do-it-yourself set of identity transformations, and the broader set of changes associated with, with this evening, what I'm going to be calling the emergence of reinvention society. Now, I've already mentioned reinvention. Um, and I thought I'd like to begin just by, as it were, telling you a story um, about what's happening in one field of reinvention, namely the field of dieting, the whole world of dieting. Now, this may not initially look like dieting, but sadly this is perhaps where some aspects of the diet industry are heading to in these early days of the 21st century. If um, diets are partly about people not getting what they want out of their lives. The flip side of that might be, of course, that the diets uh, actually involve people being promised more about their lives, often, than they ever thought imaginable. Uh, it's happening to talk about the billion-dollar uh, diet industry, but it's perhaps less happening to note that that billion-dollar industry trades on our cultural cravings for diets by always being in search of the next new diet. And if you think about it, all the way from the Scarsdale diet um, through to uh, the Atkins diet, the cabbage diet to the onion diet. Diets today are being unleashed on their consumers with such, I think, remarkable rapidity that the actual efficacy of many of these diets, of course, can never adequately be tested by their consumers. So what's this that I have here behind me? This is the tongue patch diet. It's the latest diet to be sweeping parts of Europe uh, and also parts of North America, especially, surprise, surprise, in Los Angeles. Um, it's, it didn't begin as a diet. The tongue patch began as a medical procedure. It was invented in Venezuela. And um, it was basically invented, I think, as an alternative, as a cheaper alternative um, to gastric bands. And uh, you see the procedure underway. And the diet industry has now gone about and converted it largely into, into a diet. Um, the reports that we're getting um, out of Europe uh, from the media, and especially tabloid media, are that the pioneers, the consumers that are pioneering this particular diet are reporting fantastic results. Hardly surprising because a very small postage stamp piece of abrasive plastic is essentially sewn directly onto the tongue, um, which requires the consumer to replace their four uh, solid meals with liquid supplements. So, I mean, effectively, you can't eat. Um, effectively, you can't eat. But it's, it's the speed 
Yeah, it's the speed of the procedure itself which has particularly galvanised media focus and attention in terms of the patchwork, the, the tongue patch diet, because the actual piece of uh, abrasive plastic can be fitted to the tongue in anywhere from between five to ten minutes. Okay, five to ten minutes. However, and here's the rub: it's a procedure that the consumer needs to return to the hospital and have undertaken every two to three weeks because there is the danger that the piece of abrasive plastic can actually melt into, can become interwoven with the tongue itself. Now, I see that we have a few Swedish people uh, in the audience tonight, so perhaps we should, um, perhaps we should just move on. But... Um, there is, a, I think, somewhere in this, a serious point. And the serious point is really this, that much of the you know, popular press and certainly tabloid media present these kind of the unfurling of these diets as trivial and trivialising. I actually want to suggest to you tonight in this lecture, on the contrary, um, that we can discern a great deal about the current trajectory of much social practice from these sort of transformations and the identity transformations that they entail. And in this lecture, I want to go on to sketch out why I think that's the case. So, um, this world that's taken us by surprise is a world of um, really big change. It's a world of uh, quite enormous social transformations. I have in mind here not only transformations at the horizontal sort of global level, but also at a vertical and uh, personal level. So, in terms of the horizontal or the sort of broader um, institutional changes that I have in mind, amongst others, these include, for example, the impacts of globalisation, the advent of the global electronic economy with its associated 24-7 money markets generating in excess now of some 1.5 trillion US dollars uh, daily. <coughs> the uh, communications revolution, the advent of Web 3.0, um, major transformation of our times and our lives in these times. The rise of a seemingly unstoppable universal consumerism uh, and many others. But if it's the case that you've got a set of institutional transformations which are uh, propelling women and men forward along these pathways of reinvention and identity transformation, uh, of course it's also the case that there's a set of institutional transformations which now threaten to limit, constrain, and potentially, I think, even scupper the kinds of lifestyles that women and men in the expensive, polished cities of the West have become increasingly seduced by and arguably addicted to. And here I have in mind, uh, amongst others, the whole question, of course, of changing climates, of climate change, uh, of global warming, uh, the wholesale shift from the late 20th century world of easy oil across to the early 21st century world of tough oil, with its associated you know, price hikes and spikes and shortages, as well as a range of other uh, global ecological risks and hazards. But it's not just institutional change that I think we need to be concerned with, with the, the theme 
the central theme of the TCD hub here, identity and transformation. It's not just institutional transformation, because part of my argument this evening to you is going to be that these changes actually go all the way down. Yeah? All the way down, right into the very heart of human subjectivity, right into the fabric of identity. So this encompasses interpersonal relationships, uh, friendships, family connections, intimacy, sexuality, and the body. So a really broad swathe of change, obviously, and it's precisely in terms of the intersections between the global and the personal, or in another idiom, the institutional and at the level of identity that much, uh, as Professor Barkoff was saying earlier, that much of my own work um, in recent years has been especially concentrated. And in this lecture, what I want to try and do is to try to look at the confluence of forces of cultural, social, political, and psychological forces that are somehow swirling together in these early days of the 21st century to produce the set of, of identity transformations that I'm going to be seeking to analyse in this particular lecture. So, in the time that's left to me, and I'm not quite sure what the time is that is left to me, but at least while I've got your attention, just keep going. There are three things I'm going to try and do. Firstly, I'm going to try and simply just rattle through a whole host of things that I think are fairly self-evident or obvious uh, about uh, the kinds of identity transformations that get up and off the ground today. And that will involve me saying something about uh, my own uh, conceptual contribution to the debates in the social sciences and humanities about identity studies. That really, well, I'll try and do that quite quickly, but it forms an essential backcloth to the second point. Secondly, I'm then going to go on and say something rather more slowly about reinvention, the whole cult of reinvention, which will of itself necessitate me, depending on time, in making some fundamental points. Uh, about the whole emergence of our high-speed society and the dynamics of social acceleration that we see unfolding around us today. And I'm also going to be saying something about the actual scope, reach, and the whole parameters of what I'm calling uh, reinvention society. That's going to then lead me into the third and final part of the lecture, and for those of you that are then still listening, um, I'm going to go on and try and sketch out what I think are some fairly ambitious uh, proposals uh, for the future, in terms of where might these um, identity transformations in the future lead us to, as I try to sketch out some possibilities looking out towards 2050 uh, and beyond. So, that's the structure of the lecture. Some, um, I think it's probably about 15 years or so ago now, um, I was drawn into doing some work on um, the set of debates occurring at that time in much European social theory about the set of transformations occurring, arguably occurring to identity as a result of the whole emergence of globalisation. Um, apologies in advance here for some of the more technical nature of some of this discussion. I'll try and keep this short. But much of the debate that was going on, at least as I saw it, in Europe seemed to be a debate between, on the one hand, those that were very much influenced by the late French historian Michel Foucault, uh, particularly the thesis of the notion of care of the self, and on the other hand, 
uh, set of uh, English and German sociologists that were starting to develop ideas around the notion of emergence of a process that they described as individualization. And that was a standpoint principally associated with the works of Ulrich Beck, Anthony Giddens, uh, but also many others as well. Uh, in a number of works, uh, I sought to make some contribution to this particular debate. There was uh, a book on cosmetic surgical culture, uh, a book on airports. But there was uh, principally earlier on a book with the very title New Individualism with which the work that at least I've been associated with over these last 15 years um, has been most strongly <coughs> associated with this notion of a kind of thesis or theory of, of New Individualism. And in writing that particular book, I joined forces with the American social critic uh, Charles Lambert from Yale University. Uh, I was living in the UK at that time in the early 2000s. I would often come home from work at the university and I would try to make sense out of why every night when I turned on the television, I was basically seeing this endless litany of programs telling me how to reinvent uh, my wardrobe, or how to reinvent the garden, or the house, or my sex life, and on and on. So the new individualism is, a, I mean, it's a shorthand. It's a kind of fancy way of trying to, Charles and I were trying to work out what was driving this increasing cultural obsession with instant change. Yeah? What was driving this instant, uh, rather this cultural obsession with, with, with reinvention? And to do this, we interviewed women and men on both sides of the Atlantic. We drew fairly extensively from psychoanalytic methodologies, and we engaged in very long and intensive interviews. And we were looking at a, a whole different set of diverse and different uh, domains of popular culture, all the way from, for instance, cosmetic surgery through to compulsive consumerism, all the way from speed dating uh, you know, through to therapy culture. And our argument, in short, was that uh, for women and men in the expensive cities of the West, we thought we could trace and discern, indeed, the emergent logic, cultural logics of a new form of individualism, uh, which we then labelled the new individualism, one that was fundamentally geared towards, as its preoccupation, instant change, do-it-yourself identity revisions, uh, and a whole host of other features that we identified in this particular book. Now, at the outset, and I've glossed that very, very quickly, but in terms of trying to judge people's faces here and you're responding to what I'm saying, I need to identify, I think, two important uh, and judicious qualifications to what I've just already said. Firstly, in terms of the suggestion or outlining the argument that we think there is a globalising logic associated to this new individualism that's, that's unfolding today, we are not necessarily claiming that new individualism is wall-to-wall. -wall, yeah? We're not claiming that it's wall-to-wall. -wall. It seems to me that there, for example, are plenty of things that all of us do in our daily lives that aren't in the least uh, new individualist, which would range presumably in a place like Ireland, uh, ranging all the way from going to church on a Sunday through to, for those uh, good uh, people, folk here amongst yourselves that are good enough to come out to a lecture on a sunny evening uh, at Trinity College in Dublin. So lots of things we do that seem to be anchored, I think, in kind of traditional forms of social practice. By contrast, where I think new forms of individualism can most easily be discerned are uh, precisely in the new economy, by which I mean 
um, high finance, high tech, the communications and media sectors, as well as the whole rise um, of the service industries. The second qualification, uh, this is actually less a qualification than it is an elucidation, I suppose, that I should note, is that if you're naive enough to go and call a book the new individualism, of course it begs the question, well, what was the old individualism? Your critics are going to say, hang on, what is it exactly that this new individualism has supposedly replaced? And of course that's exactly what happened to us. Um, we were lucky because, well, uh, it seemed that we were lucky because the book picked up an audience beyond the Academy and we had the chance to do a second edition and then address this particular point where we sought to identify um, a set of shifts between the old individualism and the new individualism or traditional individualism and post-traditional individualism. Now, as um, I'm sure most people in this room will know, I mean, identity is a term with very long historical roots in the social sciences and the humanities. I don't intend to sketch that out, and I can't sketch that out here. But curiously enough, Charles Lemmert and myself found when we were writing the new individualism that the term individualism, by contrast, is of actually relatively recent historical coinage. And in the book, um, we trace this back to the writings of the French thinker Alexis de Tocqueville and his book Democracy in America. Um, de Tocqueville coming to America in the early 1800s and surveying the social scene, essentially, I think, looked around and saw mostly what he seemed to see was bourgeois gentlemen who, having acquired means and morals, lived as if to cut themselves off from their fellow creatures. And it was precisely, I think, in that cutting themselves off from their fellow creatures that de Tocqueville identified this term individualism. It's very much what it meant for him. De Tocqueville's definition of individualism is one that's remarkably masculinist through and through. I mean, this was very much the notion of the bourgeois male on a Sunday afternoon retreating to their library to do what? To retreat inwards, uh, to reflect, to try to make contact with some aspect of interiority, but all with the purpose of seeking to return to public political life and to make a renewed contribution. The point of retreating to the inner and reflecting inwards was always, as it were, to come back to the civic realm. There's a terrific passage in Democracy in America, and I don't know if you can see it uh, in the bottom there, but where de Tocqueville says that individualism, and he defines individualism as being a mature and calm feeling. A mature and calm feeling. And so that, ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest to you is already the first clue as to just how far we've all travelled from 1835 through to 2014. Because it seems to me that the experience of individualism that many people have of their lives today is unlikely to generate a sense of maturity and calmness. Uh, and on the contrary, it might be more likely to generate a sense of um, panic and alarm. 
that's uh, really is the trying to trace out the differences between this older form of individualism and this newer form of individualism or traditional and post-traditional forms of individualism. Um, how on earth might all that connect to reinvention and the kinds of identity transformations where I began in terms of talking about the world of dieting today? Um, I think it's implicit in what I've been suggesting so far in this lecture that what we're seeing today is the emergence of a whole new corporate ethos. Yeah? A new corporate ethos, which is an ethos um, suggestive of the fact that women and men are required to be increasingly adaptable, they're required to be increasingly flexible. It's as if under this ethos that flexibility and adaptability are seemingly the only adequate responses to a world of thoroughgoing globalisation. Now, this new corporate ethos I'd like to suggest to you involves a new paradigm of self-making, and it's a paradigm of self-making which increasingly, I believe, requires you and I as individual subjects to be able to demonstrate, certainly to ourselves, but to demonstrate fundamentally to other people that we too are capable of lifting ourselves up by our own bootstraps and getting on with the task of recalibrating, reorganising, reshuffling, uh, regrooving the intricate texture of our lives as they connect to other lives and the wider social fabric uh, around us. Um, it's as if there is an increasing uh, knee-jerk reaction, a tipping of the hat uh, automatically as a good thing to all indications of adaptability, flexibility, uh, plasticity, pliability, uh, liquidity, uh, and very, I think brilliantly summed up uh, most recently by the Polish sociologist Sigmund Bauman uh, in in his terminology, the emergence of a thoroughgoing liquid uh, modernity. Now, what's driving that? How does that connect with reinvention and identity transformations? Uh, Jürgen mentioned that I'm a sociologist by training, so for those of you that aren't sociologists, you may just need to um, forgive me here at this point. I want to suggest to you that there are four main drivers, that there are four deep drivers that are propelling women and men along these particular pathways. And these drivers, as I see them, involve the following. They involve extensity, intensity, velocity, and impact propensity. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, let me just try and um, walk you through that. By extensity, I'm just effectively referring to the scope, the parameters, and the reach of reinvention society. Of, of where it covers, what it covers, and so on and so forth, and I'll say more about that shortly. I've already said to you that reinvention society goes all the way down, right into the very fabric of lived experience. That's what I mean by intensity. In terms of velocity, we live in a very high-speed society where people want change, and they want change fast. And understanding the uh, set of transformations around speed and velocity, I think, is increasingly important for understanding what drives the kind of identity transformations that people are today more and more caught up with. And finally, by impact propensity, I'm really just referring to the consequences of reinvention and these identity transformations. 
and certainly the political, social, and cultural consequences, but also and fundamentally the emotional consequences of these transformations, and indeed the ecological consequences of some of these transformations. Um, you might be glad to know I don't have time to walk you through all four of these deep drivers, but what I do want to do is I want to focus um, in the time that I have on two of them. I'm going to focus in on extensity and then I think velocity um, this evening. So, um, in terms of extensity, if the parameters, reach and scope of reinvention um, society are transformative. The first thing I need to know, I think, is that this is a set of transformation that reaches well and truly um, just beyond us as mere individual subjects. Because again, I think, you know, you run the risk when you stand up and you start to, and you know, I gave you the example of diets and what's happening with the tongue patch diet. And it sounds like this is just something that, you know, individuals are deciding to undertake. This is more than just individuals. Fundamentally, it involves institutions. It involves more than just cultures. It involves corporations. Uh, and in my own work, in terms of trying to understand the dynamics of reinvention and identity transformations, in recent years I've concentrated a lot on corporate life uh, and the ways in which many corporations today are increasingly organising their activities in and through the idiom of reinvention uh, as a fundamental measure for the stock market in all assessments of their productivity and the actual stock market fortunes of those particular companies. Um, some of the work that I did originally arose from uh, travelling to Finland where I worked with Nokia, um, but then I looked at a range of other companies including Cisco Systems, um, Apple and many others. But it's not those companies, I want to choose another example tonight to try and give you a sense of how I see the extensity of these transformations unfolding. Um, and the example is to look at um, airports. Because I think airports are really absolutely intriguing um, in terms of the way in which they reveal a set of transformations occurring in and around the, the idioms of reinvention and identity transformations. If I were pressed to give an answer on, well, you know, out, of, out of all the different range of public and private activities that are undertaken today, why would you choose airports? It's this. Um, we now live in a world where women and men are travelling further, faster, and arguably more frequently than at any time in human history. Yeah? In 2013, saw the arrival of over 1 billion uh, international flights. And uh, last year was also... Uh, for the first time in human history, a world which generated over 3 billion international passengers being carried by domestic and international airlines. Now, notwithstanding the squeeze that's actually on many of the uh, airlines today, this is a set of figures that uh, the, the industry is expecting will continue to grow annually by somewhere between 5 to sort of 6% per annum. So, that if you trace that out between now and 2017, 2018, you're looking at somewhere from 3.6, 3.7 billion passengers being carried. I mean, at any one time in the sky, we have the equivalent of a large American city up there. Um, and the project, I've been working with colleagues at the Hawke Research Institute through an Australian Research Council grant, 
the project is called Life in the Sky, uh, and we're trying to make sense out of some of these transformations that are happening at airports and why airports have become such a strong indicator of the kind of reinvention, society, and identity transformations um, that I began by, by sketching in. Let's go into the airport, some of the airports, to give you a sense of what it is we've been looking at. This is um, Incheon Airport in South Korea. Uh, it's a really interesting airport because, um, of course, like all airports, in a relatively short space of time, um, airports have gone from deriving the bulk of their income they went from deriving their income from aeronautical services and facilities, and they now derive the bulk of their income from non-aeronautical services, uh, facilities, um, and products. Um, now, when you fly into Incheon Airport, uh, Incheon is now a place where you might choose while you're in transit to go and play nine holes of golf. You might want to think about this here. I'm traveling out to Australia. You're going to play nine holes of golf, uh, you can alternatively uh, tee up on the driving range. Uh, there's a full driving range at Incheon Airport. Um, but it's not golf that we've become most intrigued by. In terms of new events, experiences and escapes, uh, it's uh, this, the ice forest at Incheon. When you're in transit at Incheon, Incheon you can go and do a little bit of um, ice skating. Uh, and this is just what... Uh, international passengers living their lives on the move apparently expect to be able to do when they're in transit for a few hours. The good thing about ice skating at Incheon while you're waiting for your plane is if you fall over on that ice, there's no need to be concerned. You're not going to get your clothes wet because the ice is actually plastic. <laughs> now, it's not just Incheon. This generation of alternative events, experiences, escapes... Uh, is happening at airports worldwide. Uh, an airport where my team's been spending a lot of time working of late is at Changi Airport. Uh, Changi now boasts the um, largest or the tallest slide <coughs> in the airport worldwide. It stretches across four, uh, uh, four stories. And there are many other examples. You can think of Germany's um, Clinic M at, at uh, Munich Airport, a full state-of-the-art medical facility, specialising, actually, specialising in cosmetic surgery, uh, where uh, the rich and famous can fly into and undertake a surgical procedure while they're in transit. Uh, or, of course, there are airports like um, Schiphol with its Dutch Art Masters Gallery, and on and on runs the list. Uh, the work we've been doing at Changi Airport, I think, is especially interesting there, as, as they have been for many years. They're world leaders uh, in this whole field, so they've gone and set up a, a department that they call the Experience Creation Department, um, whereby they have a whole team of people trying to come up with uh, these sorts of events and escapes for people at the Experience Creation Department. We're looking, though, both at the way in which these events and experience and escapes are designed from above, but we're also fundamentally interested in the way in which uh, people are experimenting um, with new forms of reinvention from below and the kinds of activities. I mean, if you go back to that starting point when I was saying that people are travelling more than they've ever travelled before, what is it that they're doing in airports? Because airports become a kind of laboratory, I think, for all sorts of new forms of experimentation. Okay, so that's something there about extensity. Let's switch over now to um, 
we'll leave Cisco systems out of this. Let's go over to velocity um, as a, another indicator of a deep driver structuring these identity transformations and changes. Uh, I go back to the book I mentioned earlier, The New Individualism. When we published that book, again, some of the critics said, well, you know, what's so new about the new individualism? People have been reinventing themselves since time immemorial. Yeah, there's um, nothing particularly new in all that. That's just what is part of human nature, to want to change who you are. It's human nature to want to make additions and subtractions and alterations and so on and so forth. The reason I want to focus on speed is I think there's something about speed in these early days of the 21st century which really highlights and captures why the kinds of identity transformations with which we're concerned as social scientists and scholars in the humanities has undergone a remarkable sort of uh, transformation in and of itself. Again, I want to do this, um, as it were, by example, and I want to shift the focus now to therapy culture, across to therapy culture. And let's briefly look at Freud's Vienna. There's the couch. Um, and, you know, and again, I mean, it's a very good example of, there, there it is over 100 years ago, people effectively reinventing themselves. I mean, the interesting thing about, and this is whatever particular personal views you may have about Freud and psychoanalysis, I would hope one thing we might agree on is the notion that what Freud constructed, whether he saw it in these terms or not, was that analytical space in which the analyst and the analyzan came together as a kind of laboratory, yeah, a kind of laboratory whereby I'm not saying that these people actually were successful in changing their lives in the way that they wanted to, but the hope was, Freud's hope certainly was, that somehow through the analytical work that a patient, the analzan, could come to see why it is that for their whole life, for example, they may have been treating X as equivalent as Y, and through the hard analytical task of looking at themselves and putting their own life under the microscope, they come to discover why it is that they've done that. They come to discover that X isn't Y, but these are the reasons, the emotional, psychosexual reasons as to why they've done this. Now, it's actually not that point that I want to ask you to focus on. It's the compositional architecture of psychoanalysis itself. Just think about it for a minute. Because this, by today's standards, this is a remarkable uh, photograph, I think. Because the Anilzans that went to see Freud in Freud's Vienna were committing to what? They were committing to an analysis that would last four years, five years, sometimes longer. They would turn up effectively daily for the 45-minute psychoanalytic hour. I mean, by today's standards, this is just absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and my sense of this, for what it's worth, is that Freudian psychoanalysis actually hasn't fallen on hard times because of the rise of psychopharmacology. Freudian psychoanalysis has fallen on hard times because, one, people don't have the money, and equally importantly, people now don't have the time to be able to go and commit to that kind of process of self-investigation and self-transformation. And yet, curiously, right, curiously, therapy culture hasn't fallen on hard times. Therapy culture today is actually booming, but what kinds of therapy are booming? Well, you've guessed it, 
it's phone therapy, it's cyber therapy, it's online therapy. This is uh, particularly the kind of speedy, fast, uh, quick fix, uh, buy two sessions and get one session free, um, which now particularly seduces and cajoles um, uh, uh, people looking for help uh, from the psychotherapeutic or the, from the psy professions. Um, and it's, if we look at even that advert, therapy now, it seems to me to capture very well what Milan Kundera captured uh, with his description of what's happened to speed, that today, in today's society, speed has become, he argued, a kind of lethal ecstasy. Yeah? Lethal ecstasy. Uh, there is, and I haven't time to pursue this, but there's a recent contribution out of German sociology by the, by the sociologist Hartmut Rosa, uh, his book, Social Acceleration, which I think I, I strongly recommend this book to, to the audience. Um, it's a remarkable um, treatment of, 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 of being able to take that point about legal ecstasy, I think, but being able to push it further to understand part of Rose's arguments is that what we have today is not just a speeding up. We often hear about the high-speed society, but it's not just things getting faster. Rosa shows that there are a range of complex, contradictory temporalities at work, but that somehow these often coalesce to produce the sensation in human subjects that we have to run faster and faster and faster, but often just in order to stay uh, exactly where we are. Um, okay, so the final part of this lecture, I want to raise the question now of well, where on earth might all of this be taking us to? And this really brings into focus the whole question of social futures, uh, which is an issue that in, in the last few years I've become increasingly um, interested in. I mentioned earlier a work um, on airports uh, that work, um, the, which Professor Barkoff mentioned, the title of it, Mobile Lives, was written with the British sociologist John Urry at Lancaster University. He's the director of uh, the Mobilities Lab at Lancaster, a very fancy-sounding um, research uh, centre. And uh, the reason I mention my colleague Urry is that he was the only, as far as I understand it, the only social scientist in the UK appointed by former Prime Minister Tony Blair to the UK's Foresight Programme. Foresight Programme is this, I think, very, very intriguing and interesting uh, government, uh, UK government programme which is committed to trying to trace out prospects for the future of social development in the UK and regionally uh, across a whole uh, range of domains. Uh, and as I've indicated, it's mostly uh, uh, those appointed to it tend to be natural scientists, but in, somehow Ari was appointed as rep representative of the social science sciences onto this particular foresight panel. And uh, the foresight program looks at all sorts of futures in the UK out to 2075, futures involving transport, education, um, uh, and a whole range of, of different transformations. The, the panel that Ari took part on were various travel uh, uh, futures and the kind of infrastructures that Britain would need to put in place. A heavy, heavily social policy element uh, to much of that. 
where I come from in Australia, that's a particularly intriguing thing to have happen. Um, Australians don't tend to do social futures, I think, very well, um, either at the level of the academy um, or in terms of social policy. We have a thing in Australia called the Commission for the Future, but it's nothing actually like uh, the Foresight Program. Um, and it seems to me that, uh, I don't know what the situation is here in, in Ireland, but it seems to me that the, it, it's, it's uh, uh, what Britain has might be quite, un, quite, quite remarkable in that respect. Um, because today, and I think this is an increasing uh, tendency of governments uh, worldwide for the reasons we're just looking at in terms of velocity, it's very hard to get governments, it's very hard to get government ministers to be able to commit and focus even on what's going to happen in five months' time, let alone what's going to happen in 50 years' time. So the Foresight Program is, is essentially, I think, a uh, very, very interesting program to look at when thinking about social futures. And uh, what, we've, what I've been doing with colleagues at the Hawke in Adelaide is we've borrowed some aspects of the Foresight Program and tried to inject some of that into thinking about the kinds of social futures, including the, some of the methodological precepts that they use, like backcasting, looking at social relations, infrastructural development at a certain point in time, and then trying to um, project out from that as to where the particular lines of social development might lead. Um, and in terms of the whole reinvention idiom and identity transformations, particularly around the project on airports, uh, we've been doing this with a number of different scenarios. To close the lecture, I just want to quickly go through two of these scenarios for you and then we'll move to some broader discussion. Um, these two scenarios, the first I think is the most interesting, uh, although I think it's highly ambivalent socially and politically. The second I think could be certainly catastrophic for societies. Um, the first, experimentation cultures. Um, here we've been taking a cue from the British social theorist Lord Tony Giddens, who some years ago in a book argued that in a world of thoroughgoing globalisation, everyday day, daily life becomes what he termed a kind of social experiment. Uh, we're increasingly drawn into a laboratory social experiment because we've gone from a world that was heavily conditioned by tradition and custom across to a world where um, tradition and custom has less force than what, than what it once did, which is not to say that it's um, been superseded, but that it has a different status. Giddens argues that we become increasingly drawn in um, to conducting these kind of daily social experiments with our own identities. Now, if that sounds a tad too voluntaristic for some of you, we're seeking to match that standpoint in our own work uh, with another more recent contribution, this time um, from Nigel Thrift. Uh, Thrift is the Vice-Chancellor at Warwick University, and he's been doing this absolutely, I think, captivating research on reinvention and its, and its um, <coughs> relational offshoots. And Thrift is certainly interested, um, as Giddens is, in the kinds of ways in which, to put it in a different language, um, women and men today are not waiting for permission um, they're just trying things out and trying things on as never before. But Thrift is very attentive to the institutional uh, forces that are structuring uh, many of those transformations as well. Um, he's particularly interested in what he terms the socio-technical systems that condition um, many of those the moves that are 
um, doable by human agents within these kind of daily laboratories of experimentation. Thrift's argument, um, which I grant you can sound a bit cute, is he argues that in these early days of the 21st century, women and men today are now experimenting with experiment. Yeah? He's arguing that we are experimenting with experiment. And the kinds of experimentations with experiment that Thrift is talking about, I think, often have a heavy informational overlay. This is an information overlay in the sense of, you know, um, touch screens, uh, augmented realities, location tagging. Yeah? I mean, this is just the world of Google Glass. Yeah? It's just the world of Wikimapia. Um, maps are really important um, from this kind of theoretical standpoint um, because they're generating uh, arguably a whole new form of immersion uh, within the screen that itself is throwing up new relationships between bodies and self and society more generally. There's a lot of research around this noted there on the screen. Uh, Deleuze and Guattari speak of a landscapization. Um, but there's lots of other interesting work, um, particularly, I think, very interesting work coming out of... Um, uh, in, in terms of performance research around uh, experience of immersion, Lippert's idea that what we're seeing today is a wholesale new spatial cartography in the relationship between self and society. Now, if some of that sounds slightly overblown in terms of talking, if you're trying to think about experimentation today, you can actually even shift it up a gear further uh, and here I'm thinking of something like Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near, um, a book that's, uh, curiously enough, for a work of um, focused on biotechnology, biomedicine, and the rise of information science, has had a remarkable impact recently on social theory and modern European thought. Um, I don't know how many of you know Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near, but we're now into the terrain of what the world's going to look like in 2045. And 2045 is the year that Kurzweil argues that the singularity will happen. And the singularity is the moment in which um, non-biological intelligence will not only equal, but it will start to outstrip biological intelligence. So according to Kurzweil, 2045, for those of us that can get there, is going to be the year in which we have these nanobots uh, pulsating in our bloodstreams, being able to track down identify diseases before they even strike us. 2045 is going to be the year where we're not going to have to worry about things like cosmetic surgery because we're going to be able to easily and effortlessly move between virtual and actual bodies and social relationships um, and on and on. Before some of this just happens to sound um, far too crazy for you, I should point out that Ray Kurzweil um, has been a remarkable inventor. He was the guy that invented the um, speech-to-text technology. He invented the flatbed scanner. Um, and he has a remarkable track record, actually, in predicting all sorts of things to do with social futures. So we shouldn't write Ray Kurzweil off um, too quickly. What's interesting about this, I think, is that it's reflective of the huge amount of research that's going on where people are trying to figure out... Um, the kinds of social futures that are opening up and that lay um, ahead of us. The flip side of this, though, and here I want to finish by saying something about reinvention escapes. This is the, the flip side. 
Uh, and the flip side is that if you take seriously the notion of experimentation, by its very nature, it seems to me that partly what I'm talking about is a world where people don't know what they're doing. They're making it up as they go along. And as I said, they're trying things out and they're trying things on. That can be very liberating. That can be very exciting. Another way to think of it is it can be extremely intoxicating. And I think one of the dangers with experimentation in general is that the, the flip side of it is uh, that the more people get drawn in to this notion that one can redesign one's life however one chooses without limit, you know, that there just simply now are no limits. Uh, of course, the more this opens up to all sorts of possibilities for the commercial markets to be able to move into, and that you enter a whole kind of realm of escapism. Uh, the slide that I have here, um, my free implants, this is actually a company based in America. Um, it's effectively a form of crowdsourcing, is what it is, whereby um, the donors, usually, mostly, almost typically men, will donate money to women who are seeking a breast augmentation, and when the magical sum of five or six thousand dollars is realised, that sum of money is actually not released to the woman, it's released to the surgeon that is part of the network and the procedures undertaken. And it seems to me that the jury still is out on some of this. And if you look at some of the scholarly research, you've got anthropologists like Danny Miller trying to make sense out of, well, is this meaningful to people? Or is this kind of crass commercialism just a kind of complete escape um, and a travesty of the whole notion of human autonomy? So there's a lot of quite complex research going on in the social sciences about it. I want to finish the lecture by suggesting this. I don't deny that what people are trying to escape to, their futures, is very important. But I want to finish on a note of suggesting to you that we should equally be attentive to what it is that people are seeking to escape from. And in terms of what it is that people might be seeking to escape from, I mentioned earlier the work of Sigmund Bauman, and i just finish with, I think, a, a suggestive comment he made. It wasn't in any of those books with the title Liquid in it uh, that gathered so much attention. Um, it was another little book of his which um, didn't get as much attention. <coughs> Bauman makes the argument in one of these books that he suggests that the fundamental anxiety that everyone in this room, according to him, now has today, that all men and women suffer from today, is the anxiety of disposability. Yeah? The anxiety of disposability. This is the, you know, the anxiety that we have that we're going to be dropped, that we're going to be dumped, that we're going to be discarded, either at the professional level and certainly in private life. So at the professional level with the email saying, clear your desk and be gone by midday, or in private life, with a text or an email telling you that the relationship is over. Um, I think that that actually is quite a, uh, it's, at least it's, it's a comment worthy of much more investigation than when we're thinking about reinvention of states as to what it is people are trying to get away from and indeed what it is that might be propelling us. And it seems to me it's not too much of a stretch to see that in a world today of just-in-time deliveries, endless corporate downsizings, um, global offshorings and multiple careers, it's not surprising, therefore, that that system, that economic, globalised system, 
requires human subjects to be so endlessly pliable, adaptable, um, to demonstrate their plasticity, their inherent, some kind of inherent plasticity about their identities. And I think that in itself is a very suggestive pointer as to why the whole language and idiom of reinvention and its identity offshoots has become so captivating to women and men across the planet. Um, for any of you interested in pursuing any of these arguments further, you'll find them summed up in this remarkably stylish um, and remarkably cheap uh, book <laughs> type of reinvention. I'm going to thank you for listening, and I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you.